0: All Ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today, Lime Ninja Radio.
1: I think one of my psychological advantages in this case is that, um, unlike most Americans, you know, I grew up in environments where people died right and left at any age and any time.
0: This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns, that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans, and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 198 with Lyme activist Jenna Lusche Thayer. Also welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lyme Ninja Radio, Aurora.
2: Hello, and in this episode, you will learn how Jenna brings her experience from working with the UN to Lyme advocacy, why she believes the treatment of Lyme disease patients is a human rights violation and some of the things we can start doing to change the conversation around Lyme.
0: Thanks, Aurora. And all you out there, be sure to listen to the end of the podcast for this week's Lyme Ninja Fact of the Day. Very important. It's the best part of the podcast, perhaps.
2: As you know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week, we have listeners join us from all over the world. This past week, we've had listeners from Cyprus to South Korea and from Ireland to Israel.
0: Also, a big thank you to all you longtime Lyme Ninjas. Aurora and I really appreciate you listening.
2: And we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lyme Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in.
0: Speaking of tuning in, this week's top 10 tune-in cities are...
2: Number 10, New Haven, Connecticut.
0: Number 9, North Lakes, Australia.
2: Number 8, Louisville, Kentucky.
0: Number 7, Naperville, Illinois.
2: Number 6, Arlington, Virginia. Number
0: 5, Utica, New York. Some
2: hometown representation. That's
0: right. That's just two miles, three miles, well, five miles up the road. Anyway, (laughs) it's nearby, really nearby.
2: Uh, number four. Hi, neighbors. Hi, neighbors. Number four. Holly Springs, North Carolina.
0: Number three. Highland, New York.
2: Number two. Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts.
0: And number one. Daejeon, Republic of Korea. Did I say Dajun. that right? Daejeon. Daejeon. Sorry. Daejeon, Republic of Korea.
2: I might be saying that wrong too. Um, Your
0: sounds more likely than mine.
2: So if you're from Daejeon or Daejeon, let, let us know how badly we did. Do you know your Lyme score? If not, do yourself a favor and head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com, fill out the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. It's free.
0: Alrighty, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about today. Wait, wait, I want to pause there for the Lime Symptom Tracker. I've been talking to a developer, and we're going to turn it into a mobile app. It's going to be really cool. So stay tuned for that. We're going to do a little fundraising for it. It's not going to be all that expensive, but if you can participate and help us uh, pull together a little bit of money to make this happen, that would be super cool. All right, Aurora, tell us a little bit about this week's guest, Jenna Luche Thayer.
2: Jenna Luche Thayer is a consulting senior advisor for the United Nations on human rights abuses and has been working at the United Nations for 33 years. She recognized the pattern of behavior surrounding Lyme disease from her work at the UN as an abuse of patients' rights. In response, she founded the Global Response to Borreliosis and Co-Infections Consortium and works to get better treatment for those with Lyme disease.
0: Thanks, Aurora, and here's our interview with... Jenna Luche Thayer.
1: Hi, McKay. Nice to talk to you.
0: Likewise.
1: <laughs> and you're up in you're up in New York State, I see.
0: I'm in central New York, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, I lived in the Hudson Valley for a while. It's a beautiful area.
0: That's where I got my lime.
1: Well, that's where I got one of my many. Attacks of Lyme, reinfections, infections, whatever. That's what I
0: was gonna begin with. If you don't mind us jumping right in. Oh no, I don't mind. Is how did you get interested in Lyme disease? Because your background is literally all over the place.
1: Well, um, well, maybe not so interesting. Like so many of us, I was recruited by a tick. My, as you noted, my my background is international. I I was born in Vietnam. I grew up in Asia and Africa and worked in Europe and throughout Asia and Africa. My own professional background was is international. It's human rights and, and basically the provision of basic services to the most underserved populations on the planet. And I also grew up in a family that did work with underprivileged people, underserved people. So I grew up in very rural environments with very little medical infrastructure and a lot of exposure to vector borne diseases. I was actually born with malaria. Wow. Yeah. So I've had all kinds of vector borne diseases throughout my life malaria multiple times. Uh, I've had brucellosis. I've had this. I've had that. I've just, you know, because when you're w- living and working in these environments, even if you use a mosquito net or you practice good prevention, you're always being exposed. It's almost impossible not to have exposure. I know, well, I I think that I got my first exposure to uh, Lyme borreliosis when I was 16. I developed a summer flu type of thing. And a few weeks later, it seemed to pass. And then a a few weeks later, I woke up with a slight Bell's palsy Mm. and severe joint pain and fatigue that lasted for three months. And then I was young and uh, my immune system was fairly robust and you know, good health habits, and I think my body just kind of fought it back down. So I'm just saying that's at least one exposure that I know of. And then subsequent exposures, I don't even know how many, but because I was living and working in developing countries, you know, they thought maybe I had contracted some exotic bug, some exotic virus.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I wasn't even really being checked for Lyme. Mm. And I've known about Lyme since the 1980s. In the, in the 80s, I went to graduate school up in Vermont, it was a small community, and I knew a lot of people who were getting sick with Lyme disease. Mm. And I knew that it was very serious because some of them, you know, I had been told to develop brain lesions. Yeah. yeah, So I knew that from like really very early on. But I also was, like so many of us, completely misinformed through our public health messaging. And I would always say to myself, I'm so lucky I've never gotten Lyme because I've never had a bullseye rash. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh I've I've had a lot of exposure. I'm not sure which strain or which variety of strains or what mix of tick borne diseases and other vector borne diseases eventually made me so sick that I became debilitated. But I started having weird health things happening in my 30s that were kind of inexplicable things that would come and go and did not match anything in my life. You know, there wasn't anything going on in my life to be causing these things. So I, I knew at that time that there was something in my body. And I went to, you know, I got testing of this and that and whatever. And then it got so significant that I could not work full time. I just couldn't manage it. I decided then at that time to just work part, not part-time, but work as a consultant. I left my my job as a senior advisor to United Nations and I started consulting. And for a number of years, I was able to get by doing like a six-week assignment and I could work all day and then sleep from the minute I I got in from the workday until the next morning, like, you know, whatever, 12 hours or 10 hours, 10 hours or whatever, and then once I got home, I would just sleep for six weeks, just couldn't get out of bed. So I was able to kind of manage this for a number of years. And then that became almost impossible to manage. So I was, you know, I was kind of fighting it all along this whole time over. Let's see. The, the health stuff started showing up in my thirties. I was diagnosed when I was 52. When I got diagnosed, I, what happened, I was visiting a friend of mine and she is a medical professional associate at Johns Hopkins. Very, very bright, talented woman. She got really sick and she almost died. And I got a call from her mom. She goes, you have to go visit her. She may be dying. So I went to visit her. She was in a very bad way. And she didn't tell me what had gotten her sick. She just said that an infection had attacked her vagus nerve. She was on IV antibiotics for quite a long time, eventually recovered. I was talking to her, but I just don't know what's wrong with me. And she said, you need to get tested for Lyme. And I gave the classic response, but I've never had a bullseye rash. Why should I get tested for Lyme? And she was like, oh, brother, do you need some educating? (laughs) So So she she definitely steered me in the right direction, definitely. She's a medical (laughs) professional. She almost died from this illness. And uh, she she gave me the right information. She told me not to even bother with the standard tests and uh, recommended I go and get tested at Igenix. And got, I tested positive for the, you know, the, the southern blots, the PCR, and my antibody tests were, I got positive bands, but not CDC positive. But I've had it for decades, mm-hmm. you know. So I got my test results, and then, yeah, of course, I, she didn't tell me about the difficulty of getting treatment, though. She just said about the difficulty of getting diagnosed. So then I went around trying to get somebody to treat me, and it was like, uh, no, we won't do that. People didn't want to treat me at all. And I have property up in a rural area of Appalachia, and the rural health clinics are federally subsidized, and they have to use uh, the least expensive medications to treat multiple conditions. It's just the way it's set up. And interestingly enough, uh, doxycycline is used to treat arthritis. No
0: kidding.
1: Yeah. So I went to the rural health nurse who I, I knew because that was like my little local clinic up in that area. And I, I went with some papers. I went with a, a Joe Broscano's guide on how to treat Lyme mm-hmm. and some other publications showing that longer-term treatment may be necessary. And she had seen me going downhill, so she knew I wasn't attention-seeking. <laughs> she but knew I that I was sick. sick. Yeah, yeah, she knew I was sick. Actually, she had uh, had me tested for a number of things, and they had diagnosed me with lupus and MS, but I... I refused to take the medication because I didn't believe I had either of those illnesses. So she knew how sick I was. She said, well, we'll try you on it. We'll see what happens. And uh, and then I found out also that she had a family member who had become very sick from Lyme. And that's one reason she was open to giving me open-ended doxycycline. And I'm very sensitive to all antibiotics. And so I combined the doxycycline with the Booner protocol. Oh, good. And yeah, and so I think it was very synergistic. And then I also read up about other things I could do to improve the potency of the Booner protocol and such with herbs and things, getting it past the blood brain barrier. I had very significant neurological complications from it, partial seizures and everything. I had an MRI that showed brain lesions all over and indic- indicative of uh, multiple sclerosis. So within six months, basically, I was functioning again. And I've been on treatment ever since. I guess I'm in what you call remission. So that was six years ago that I was diagnosed and treated. And i like I said, I've been on continuous treatment, but it's been plant based. And I have been having kind of, kind of continuous improvement over a six-year period. The most exact, the most uh, significant was in the first two years. But I've still had kind of continuous improvement because I've had decades of damage being done. Yeah,
0: that's incredible.
1: Yes, it is. And on a side note, my husband is from Old Line, Connecticut. And uh, we met in our 40s. And uh, when we met each other, we were both in pretty good shape. We were both like in those periods of reprieve when you have with this illness, you know. Mm-hmm. But within about a year and a half of our marriage, he he started falling apart too. And I, I was falling apart. So um, we both were very sick together. And when I got my diagnosis, I said, you know what? I think you should get treat- You should get tested. He's like, mm-hmm. why should I get tested? I said, well, let's see. <laughs> Every time you get tired, your face droops. Uh, you know, half of your face droops. Uh, right. You have all of these symptoms and signs. And so I think, and you're from old line. Gee. And uh, you you, you've you had this ever since those tick bites you had when you were a teenager. You know. <laughs> what more do you need? What more do you need? So he has it as well. Bartonella, Babesia, you know, we have a soup, But, uh, you know, his remission has not been straightforward like mine. He's been much more up and down. Yeah. So, you know, that's very typical, right? This illness does mm-hmm. what it does, um, and it treats everybody differently. And, you know, we never know from day to day how long remission will last. Right. But it's so true. But that's, you know, you can't take anything for granted with this. And I think one of my psychological advantages in this case is that um, unlike most Americans, you know, I grew up in environments where people died right and left at any age and any time. So I never associated health and death with being old. That's an interesting point. So from a very young age, being very aware of trying to take care of myself. Yeah. yeah and I've, and I've always been you know I was a I was eating organic even before it was trendy because I couldn't stand the way non-organic food tasted because I'd grown up in farming communities because I was born and raised in those environments i I didn't have any childhood immunizations and so I think my immune system is pretty robust
0: so when did you decide to put all your experience and talents together and turn this into a uh, cause for lack of a better word, yeah. a better word.
1: There's well, I mean, my, my background, I've always, I work for the, the, the most vulnerable, the most underserved, the most exploited, the most mistreated. That's just always been what I've done. It's been my orientation. Even since childhood, what happened is I was, you know, in my beginning of my treatment and my brain was starting to clear up and I, was reading everything I could about this situation. And it just didn't make sense what was going on. And so I started digging in more and more. And my, my professional work is I, I work a lot on issues of corruption. And we call it in a polite way, we call it transparency and accountability. So I had that background. And then I had always based all of my work on a human rights-based approach. In other words, my belief is that certain things are human rights, the rights to education, the right to health care, the right to housing, the right to food, the right to water, the right to medical care. Uh, these are rights. These are human rights. We all, we all are, in, are entitled to them, but we have to fight for them in many cases. And so a lot of my work has been not only with the government side of providing infrastructure, but mobilizing populations to demand for their rights. And in this case, I was looking at the situation. I was like, oh, my God, I know what this is. This is corruption and human rights abuse. (laughs) I know what to Mm -hmm. do with this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to start framing it as a human rights abuse. I'm going to start assessing it, all these practices, and see what human rights abuses they link to, of which I found 11 different treaties, international and regional treaties of violations, uh, from the treatment of Lyme patients and their human rights defenders. And then, of course, I you know, followed the research of a lot of people before me on all the med- medical and scientific fraud surrounding this disease and the corruption around it as well. So people don't tend to look at this situation in terms of human rights violations and corruption. They tend to look at it, I mean, generally as though we just need better answers. We need better treatment. We need better diagnostics you know, we need more access to care. But right. they don't realize these are actually systemic mm-hmm. corruptions in place and systemic human rights abuses in place that are being that are being allowed and or even facilitated by the government. And not only our government, governments across the planet.
0: So can you this is like a very high level conversation here, you know, kind of like the the satellite view. Can you zoom in on like one or two issues? Where, this, where the rubber meets the road to help people understand exactly
1: sure. what you're talking about? For example, almost every modern nation in the world and most nations in the world have constitutions and laws that support human rights. In other words, they don't go against human rights. And we have very specific laws that try to protect human rights. I'll give you an example. Americans with disabilities. Okay. The Americans with Disabilities Act was written specifically to protect the health, human rights, and other rights of people with disabilities. Because these people were facing discrimination and they were being not given service, not getting housing, not getting medical care, not being given the same dignity and respect of an, of an able-bodied person. So this law was put into place. Now, Many of us know the situation with the Brzezzi family, Julia Brzezzi, the young girl who uh, was blessed by the Pope and took a long time for her to get a diagnosis. And she's still, she's doing better, but she's still in a wheelchair. Well, Mm -hmm. under the American with Disabilities Act, when somebody is disabled and she qualifies as disabled because of her sight and her inability to walk, She is, by law, protected and allowed to have experimental treatments for her conditions. And she has been denied those rights. So this is flagrant violation of the American with Disabilities Act and it's flagrant violation of her human rights. So how does this happen? Why is it that when this was brought to the attention of local lawmakers and the CDC who knows the story and other government bodies, entities, federal agencies, they didn't do anything about it. That's complicit, that's complicity. When a, state, when, a, when a state actor, that means a government official or government agency does nothing with the full knowledge there's a violation taking place, then they are complicit they are colluding in this situation. Does that help to explain?
0: Strong strong words.
1: Yes, it is. But that's exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what's going on. And Julia is just one of the many, one of the well-known cases. Think about
0: so many out there,
1: hundreds of thousands on a, you know, who are being denied treatment. So I'll give you another example. Um, With regards to health human rights, you know, no one is required to provide everybody all the treatments that are out there. No government is required to do that. No hospital is required to do that. No private insurer is required to do that. However, it is a human rights violation to obstruct access to these treatments. So They can't, they're not under any obligation to provide it. But if they obstruct your access, that is a clear violation of your human rights. And every time somebody wants to get treatment that have met, has met internationally validated standards for evidence-based guidelines, such as the treatment protocols that are described by the international Lyme an Associated Diseases Society, ILADS guidelines, every time they are told, we will not allow you to take this, we will not allow you access to that, that is a human rights violation. Is that a good example? Yeah. Yeah. That's
0: exactly what I was looking for. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, that's, that's like, you, you couldn't be more clear, you know, you cannot, you cannot simply deny people access. You might not agree. You might say, well, this treatment is better, or that means treatment is better, well, you can have a, you can agree to disagree, but you can't deny my right to it. And they certainly don't do this for any number of uh, treatment options for other other conditions.
0: Yeah. Now, why do you think that is? Corruption. And specifically, for what
1: purpose? Well, there are many different layers of corruption in this case. You have the the fraud around the case definition and the re- redesigning of the test, the diagnostic test to sponsor the Limerick vaccine. That's just one area of fraud. Mm -hmm. But then you have the ongoing fraud of every company that manufactures these terrible um, ELISA tests because they know that they are poor quality and they manufacture them. And the public will, you know, in order to get a positive test result, they'll pay for 10 tests in the hopes of one positive result. So,
0: right, that happens to catch the antibodies at the right time.
1: That's right, and so that's a that's a fraud, and that's a you know because you, they're making a profit every time you go in for a test. So why have one good test that's reliable when you can have somebody pay ten times for a crappy test? That's a form of defrauding the public and and telling them that this test is reliable when it isn't and costing them money. And of course, those costs are offloaded onto the Patients, because if you have insurance, it won't cover one test every so often, you know. Yeah, Um, what's
0: the deal with that? What's the deal with insurance?
1: Okay. Well, uh, as you probably know from reading um, the book, Cure Unknown, written by Pamela Weintraub, she gets Mm -hmm. into that quite well, and she details it. But basically, in this country, when um, managed care came in, they designated a series of conditions and said, you know, these are costly conditions and we don't want to cover them. And so they just stopped doing it. And we, we didn't have the, the political teeth to fight them. And partly because, you know, our legislators' campaigns are sponsored by insurance and pharma. Not all, but many of them. So the very people who are there to represent our interests are often representing the interests of these donors. And the most powerful sector globally is the insurance sector. So they have a lot of power, and a lot of our so-called elect, a lot of our elected officials are, are following their, their objectives, supporting their objectives, rather than supporting the objectives of the average constituent, you know, because the average constituent isn't necessarily giving them the same kind of campaign support um And or making the money privately afterwards, you know. However, I mean the various arrangements that happens. So that's one thing. The other thing is with insurance is it's not just Lyme disease, of course. They're doing this with different diseases. Lyme is not the only one where they just don't want to cover costs. One thing you will see though, um, and this has been documented quite quite thoroughly, is that insurance and um, pharmaceutical companies work hand in glove to determine which things will be will be supported because they invest in each other. In other words, you know, an insurance company will have huge investments in pharmaceutical industry and they will allow coverage of certain conditions because the return on that investment will profit them. So, you have I mean that just helps to explain why some drugs that are very expensive insurance companies don't blink an eye to sponsor them, to sponsor, you know, to allow that treatment to go forward. Well, they're investing particularly in that drug, you know, <laughs> the company's investing in it. Not in every case, specifically line by line, but that's a general trend. That's basically what's done. Um, and that, that explains why some conditions that have very expensive treatments are, are are accepted by insurance companies and others aren't. And I can tell you that, Generic antibiotics are way, way down the list uh, for anybody because you can't make a lot of money off of them. Um, As a matter of fact, they're so far down the list that um, the U.S. government has made it, has recognized that we have a national security threat because we have lost our national capacity to develop, to, to manufacture the antibiotics we need for our population.
0: And then, so we've got this giant wazzle the mess going on
1: here. Yeah. You could call like a perfect the... storm. It's a perfect storm, right? It's greed it and, it and change in yeah. legislation, changing in our politics, erosion then, of our yeah. legislative intent, erosion of the firewalls between public institutions and private yeah. private investors. Yeah, it's like a perfect firestorm. And, you know, um, again, sneaky bacteria. It's, yeah, and a sneaky bacteria, but it's not just Lyme. It's not just happening to Lyme patients. You know, I'm just trying to, I want to register that, that there are other patient groups that are facing very similar issues to the Lyme patients, just we're one of the biggest and fastest growing patient groups. And, and we also are in a situation whereby um, we actually have on hand remedies that could keep most of us functioning, and they're being denied. And that's the difference between us and other patient groups. Um,
0: so- so speaking of denial, where does the IDSA fit in there? Because it's not obvious right up front that, you know, a group of professionals have anything at stake other than their egos. You know, how did, how did they fall into this?
1: Well, um, IDSA and their affiliates have over 200 patents related to Lyme disease. So they are deep in the muck in terms of uh, corruption. Um, they have one of the IDSA authors... That Waller um, for the 2006 IDSA guidelines, you know the IDSA guidelines from 2006, which are still being promulgated, being used globally, um, basically said that you know no chronic Lyme, uh, short-term treatments, you know right. easy to blah blah blah, yeah, easy right. to catch, yeah. easy to hard to catch, easy to cure. Well, he put a patent out. His patent was um, registered 2007, giving a completely different picture. So there are a lot of people <laughs> there's knowledge that this is a very serious pathogen and and so on the one hand it's kind of like think of yourself as positioning for a market share on an upcoming you know debut by the way here's a let's say virus virus x is coming in and mm-hmm. you're not going to tell the public about it until you have your your vaccine set up and your treatment set up and this and that oh, okay. and then you're going to get the you're going to get the market share Well, this has kind of been what's been happening with Lyme for a long time because there's so much money to be made off of it. So many people have it. (laughs) And so there's been a lot of positioning and jockeying around it, and that's why we have so many patents on it. I mean, so many people on the Tick-Borne Disease Working Group have patents on Lyme. Um, They've been getting millions of dollars over time to study its immune evasion and to help uh, with better diagnostics looking at not so much on the treatment side, but, you know, this has been studied with millions and millions of dollars and it's been generating all these patents. So at some point, these people all all expect to cash in just for the armed forces alone, you know, or any other government group of employees. Once this stuff gets um, registered properly, it's going to be making billions of dollars because there's going to be all these people who will be required to take certain vaccines and certain treatments, et cetera, et cetera. You
0: know anyone who
1: works for the government? Now I want to also. Was that yeah, clear? Was that
0: clear? It's fair. It's very clear. But here's the next. I, I want to take this and, and expand it out. Yeah. A, a little bit because uh, you know I, I do speak to people from Australia and the UK and, yeah. and Ireland and every once in a while from from Europe as well. Yeah. And this. You know, it's not just a U.S. No. issue here. It's it's the same issue. It's the same, what do you say, perfect storm uh, all over the place.
1: Well, yes, because yeah. because the insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies are multinational conglomerates. It's all the same companies. They, they are corrupting government systems in exactly the same way. In systems that have larger private insurance like ours, uh, although Medicare, Medicaid actually is the biggest insurance sure in our in our country in with national health systems in Scandinavia and A NHS etc just like the insurance companies make billions by not covering the cost for treatment and national health systems save billions from not covering the cost of treatment and it's all the same incentive packages you know these national health uh, services globally are are faced in, in the developed world um are facing the same constraints as we are here you have aging population uh, and a shrinking tax base to support these systems. And then you have a corrupt pharmaceutical and insurance company system that's pred- predating on it. So they're taking the line share of the resources that's supposed to be providing medical care. So that's that's, p- that's it's happening globally because these or, these entities are global entities. In other words, what's p- happening here is the same thing that's happening in the U.K. and the same thing that's happening in Scandinavia, like you said. So these are the same players. There, there's some very good books out about it. Um, one of them, for example, on, on pharmaceutical corruption lays it out very, very well. Um, and it's written by a top scholar from the Cochrane Institute in, um, Denmark. I mean, there are, there are a lot of scholarly studies on how this is being done. This is not Facebook conspiracy. These are scholarly works <laughs> on how, um, These practices of corruption are are occurring. And in fact, um, last year, 2017, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health gave a huge presentation to the General Assembly, which means all the um, countries in the world who are members of the UN, and basically said the most corrupt sector globally is the health sector. But yeah, so this is happening globally because these entities are global.
0: So so this, is, this sounds grim. Is there a way out?
1: Human history is all about, you know, fighting for rights and gains and losses and gains and losses, right? You know, the pendulum, right? We mm-hmm. have advances and we have... So I would say globally, we are in a new time as humanity. We have, you know, multinational corporate presence now to the point so powerful. They're more powerful than a lot of nation states that we are... Under, you know, on whose rule we're living under, you know, or maybe they're not powerful across the board, but they are very powerful in various sectors. So, um, yeah, I mean, our public institutions are at risk, you know, they're not as strong as they, they used to be. They're not protecting us in the same way. They're being influenced by these very powerful groups. That's nothing new you know what i was saying that's kind of known but i don't know how well people do know it yeah so i mean th- this is not conspiracy this is like well studied information you know i mean this is like mm-hmm. so here here is here's an example so dr peter gosh of the nordic cochrane institute in copenhagen he wrote a book called deadly medicines and organized crime how big pharma has corrupted healthcare and he goes through all of these different countries. This guy's a scholar, you know, and he is one of the, he's one of the many people who helped this UN uh, special rapporteur to present this report to the, to the General Assembly. I mean, not, I'm not saying he specifically added to it, but there are many people writing on this because it's an increasing issue. I mean, it's, it is threatening economic security in many countries. The The degree of predatory behavior in our medical sector, in our health sector, is actually under, going to be undermining our economies. It's already starting to undermine our economies. So it's it's a major issue. But he, he wrote this book. And, um, for example, um, prescription drugs are the third leading cause of death after heart disease and cancer. The,
0: the famous nosocomial events. Excuse me? There's, there's a... A term that they use to hide these—they call them no no ah, yes. And it's a te- it's a technical term to, for oops. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. The main reason we take he quote unquote the main reason we take so many drugs is that drug companies don't sell drugs; they sell lies about drugs. This is what makes drugs so different from anything else in life. So, so we have a corrupted medical system, and so we have a, a condition, an infection. That can be, in many cases, managed with generics. No money in generics. So we are all being pushed towards uh, biologics, um, symptom-modifying drugs um, that actually harm our health, our immunosuppressants, and we will spend most of our income on, and maybe liquidate what we have assets in order to have them until we die. If I had accepted my MS. Um, uh, diagnosis, diagnosis yeah. 10 years back yeah. I was when I got my MS diagnosis
2: grief.
1: I would have pharmaceutical the pharmaceutical world would have made over half a million dollars off of me mm-hmm. and instead I was able to turn my health around with $800 of generic antibiotics and ongoing plant-based medicine which averages a couple hundred dollars a month but Nothing like half a million dollars. Right. <laughs> so
0: much, so much, so
1: much cheaper, te- and I'm so much better than I would have been. I would have been yeah. even sicker. Okay. You know, so, maybe yeah. I would have been kind of numb, so I wouldn't. But <laughs> I would have just been more ill. So um, but you know, so we're at a time where you know, there, there, we, we're kind of at a radical time, you know, in human history because we really are. You know where where are we going in the future? Are we going to allow um, people who don't know us and who don't care about us and who profit off of us to determine our future and determine the quality of our lives, or are we going to organize and and fight for our rights and um, you know one of the things about Lyme disease i don't you I sent you the recent article about uh, the changes in the ICD codes, the international classification of diseases codes. And mm-hmm. I know, and I, and I said that for the first time, the World Health Organization has recognized a series of potentially fatal complications from Lyme disease. Yeah,
0: it's, kind of it's a big, a
1: big deal. deal. It's a really, really big deal. And it is a slap in the face, you know, to the powers that be. Uh, because this means billions of dollars in a different way of spending. You know, billions of dollars are going to sh- go in different directions if this information gets properly disseminated and used. And it was money that was coming to them; it's not going to come to them. You know, <laughs> that's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And um, right. so it has a lot of financial implications. Number one. But you know, why did it happen now? It happened because there are enough people in the UN system and in all these different countries who are reviewing all of these uh, recommendations coming in for the new ICD codes who know that this is serious, is a serious illness and it can kill you. And they have friends and family or they themselves are dealing with it. So, you know, you can only suppress information for so long. Uh, but again, this is just one of many kind of conditions or patient groups that is fighting for their rights. And you know, that our our whole global medical system is 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 you know you go go back to why is it the same here in the states as well as in other countries? Well, you know, we're using the same ICD codes. These c- codes are have been adopted since 19. 19- 67 globally, and every so many years they get revised. And the revision process is partially science and medicine-based, and it's very much politically based. Um, To give you an example, uh, when do you think that Ebola was given an ICD code?
0: (laughs) I have no idea. Well,
1: Ebola was discovered in the 70s. -hmm. It's known to be highly fatal. It's been there have been outbreaks killing people since the 70s. You know, we've had international experts rushing to the outbreak sites to study it. Yep, yep. It was given a code in 2016.
0: Wow, just two years ago. Why
1: do you think it was given a code in 2016?
0: Uh, somebody got a be in their bonnet and went and rattled some doors.
1: No, more than that. There wouldn't be one okay. person. It was the fact that it, it that the epidemic breached um, the US, Canada, and Europe. Uh, the infection got the, epide- the the infection got into the wealthy industrialized nations. And so they said we need a code so that we can organize a global response to this. Another example of how much money is involved how how money plays a role in these codes and how money plays a role in our global medical system is uh right now there's a bitter feud going over the fact going on about the fact that traditional medicines are being recognized in the ICD11 codes and where do you think the stink is coming from
0: Well, it's not for me cuz I'm an acupuncturist.
1: Right. So where do you think the stink is coming from? <laughs> That's place. right. They're up in arms. They're doing everything they can to dispute and to not have this happen. Well, you know, right now, that's, they're not going to win. And the reason they're not going to win, well, first of all, they've already lost the battle because the ICD-11 is, has been revised. They're going to have a pro forma vote on it, but it's been vetted and, and, you know, through multiple processes over a number of years, 31 countries did test implementation of it, started being translated into multiple languages. But the reason that this time traditional medicines got, medicines got recognized in the ICD codes is because of the rising power of China and India. So it's
0: about time.
1: Right. But my point is, you see, (laughs) you see, so these things are a lot of it is about who has the power. Mm -hmm. And so pharmaceutical companies, the only thing they're going to do now is they're going to see if they can't try to patent everything and, and turn it into a pharmaceutical product you know, to right?
0: Yeah, right, find the active ingredient and put a patent
1: on it uh, Yeah, whatever, right. Some
0: novel chemical
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I mean and, and try to, you know, lobby to restrict, you know, plant actual plant-based, you know, derivatives and, you know, um, powder or whatever, Right so they're going to they're going to do everything they can to keep the keep their you know insanely greedy profits going but i'm just giving you examples of how how you know when you talk about what's going on and what can be done globally i think people have to you know stop just because you trust your doctor and you like your doctor doesn't mean he's not sitting or she's not sitting in the middle of a very corrupt system and and people have to recognize that the medical system is the most corrupted sector. Healthcare sector is the most corrupted sector globally. And all that that means. And if they don't start doing something about this and being active on it, then then they will get the healthcare they deserve. I mean, it's, so let's yeah
0: let's let's wrap up there. So let's you've been very generous with your time. We're going on an hour here. Sorry. Yeah. And it's fair. No, 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 no. That's a, that takes this long. And I know we've just scratched the surface.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, but that's, you know, that's just the nature of a, of a conversation. So somebody's listening right now. They say, wow, you know, I've got some extra time on my hands. I've got some extra energy, maybe some extra money. How do they get involved?
1: Well, there's a lot of different ways people can get involved. And a lot of it, of course, depends on their their own health, you know. What they can do. But um, I think that, you know, information campaigns, I mean, a lot of Lyme advocates focus on prevention. Mm -hmm. And um, that's just not enough. It's just not enough. You know, prevention, as I was talking to you about earlier, um, it's very hard to prevent vector borne diseases. You know, very hard, realistically. You have to live a life that's fairly separated from nature in order to avoid vector-borne diseases. If if they want to be more effective in terms of making changes, I believe they have to stop arguing simply along medicine and science. They have to bring home the point that these are human rights abuses, um, and it's not a matter of medical debate whether or not I should have access or anyone should have access to treatment options. It's not a medical debate. It's a human right, number one. Number two, they need to start taking on this information about the ICD codes and using it as a point of leverage. For example, if they want to talk about prevention and now congenital Lyme has been officially recognized in the ICD code 11 by the World Health Organization, we don't have to wait for these codes to be implemented in the next, you know, in the next couple of years. You take that information that the World Health Organization has recognized congenital Lyme and you say prevention needs to include the testing of all expectant mothers and all those wishing to have children, planning to have children, and that this is their right to, to uh, you know, ensure the, the health of their, their children. Um, that could be part of a prevention thing, and that would make use of the information about, uh, about Lyme that's been uh, validated by the World Health Organization. And it would be much more, shall we say, effective to, you know, uh, have expectant mothers get tested or even clinic- clinically diagnosed and have the opportunity to take treatment than to try to, you know, treat alone, just prevention of tick bites. <laughs> um, I think another thing that they could do is because the World Health Organization has now validated that Lyme borreliosis um, can cause dementia, that anytime somebody is getting a dementia diagnosis, um, there should be a policy change that they could have empiric therapy for Lyme or other infectious agents that causes dementia and to see if that helps with their, with their uh, symptoms and improves improve their health. So these are like immediate policy change, very focused, very specific. that are based on validation by the only public health institution that represents all the governments in the world. Um, I think another thing that they could do is that they could, Uh, start suing the individuals on medical boards that are attacking our doctors. I think we need a lot more aggression, uh, legally legal aggression to take this out because it all comes down to money. And um, people have to start feeling it themselves in order to stop bad behavior. I think there has to be a lot of very aggressive legal action. I think that... um, The people who say that they are on the side of patients have to stop using fraudulent phrases like the post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Every time that phrase is used, it reinforces the message that this is a psychosomatic illness. And no one should tolerate that. And I don't care if you need to use post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome in order to get a publication. With open, open publishing now, you can get things published you know, you can get into a reputable publication without, without using this term that continuously refers back to medically unexplained symptoms. Medically unexplained symptoms are psychosomatic symptoms. And that term has been repudiated by the American Psychiatric Psychiatry Association and has been deleted from the DSM-5. So I don't know why we tolerate that, you know, that use. It would be kind of like calling um, female genital mutilation a rite of passage. You know, you have to call things for what they are.
0: Words are powerful tools.
1: Yes, they are. And we have to to use the right words. You know, we have to use the right words. We have to say, this is just a matter of better tests. I said, no, actually, it's a matter of denying diagnosis. And that's a human rights violation. (laughs) You know reframing it and it's really important to reframe because if you use the language of the people of the groups who are causing the harm you're not going to change the conversation you need to claim the language you need to claim the platform on how you're going to describe and present things so that first of all other people outside of the medical and scientific world understand it and relate to it I think another thing that we have to do as advocates is stop presenting simply individual stories of people's lives that has had no impact whatsoever over the long haul. That's not to say it doesn't raise awareness, but every time there is a story about an individual's life, it should be tied very specifically to all the reasons why this person is in the situation they are. It should refer to corrupted science, science riddled with conflicts of interest. It should refer to financial incentives shared by the NIH and the CDC on patents. It should refer to misinformation and fraudulent uh, defrauding the public on unreliable tests. I mean... This is the kind of inf- this is the way it should be framed because that's what's going on. There shouldn't be like, oh well, the CDC public health messaging for Lyme is very inaccurate and is harmful. <laughs> harming Jenna, people. You play
0: you play hardball, I like
1: it. Well, I don't think softball has helped. <laughs> as long as you can back it, as long as you can back it with facts, You can play hardball. I mean, people don't like it, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to win a popularity contest. And, you know, when I, when I hear people kind of quibble on the situation of Lyme disease, I see it very much as, you know, you're either allowing more people to suffer and die or you're fighting against that. That's how I see it because I see this disease as very serious and I see that it has destroyed many, many lives. And it's not something to, you know, kind of discuss in a in like a well, eventually we can change the terminology kind of thing. No, we don't need to wait. Every time, I mean, certain compromises. Oh, fine. I'll give you an example: the tick-borne disease working group. You know, their report that's come out, the congressional report draft. It's not good news for the Lyme community. Um, If you don't know the background of sounds fairly reasonable. They talk about the importance of research and better understanding of this and that. And that's true. We need research. We need better understanding, et cetera. But if you ignore, you have to then ignore the fact that hundreds of millions of dollars has already gone into that and it has resulted in nothing because that's part of the practice of corruption to just, you know, give money to look like you're doing something without doing anything. It's benefiting a lot of people to operate that way. Um, and the other thing that makes the report so weak is that all the recommendations that came out requesting immediate action to improve, to overcome obstacles to treatment options and to diagnostics, all of those were basically taken out. And all the requests to have specific legislation to protect this vulnerable patient group, that was all taken out. They talk about legislation, but they say we can, basically, we can depend and upon the current legislation to protect this patient group when it has absolutely failed this patient group. People living with HIV AIDS, they got a, a federal law passed and was adopted globally across the UN system, basically recognizing them as persons of special consideration. And we need a similar uh, pr- law passed for us because we have had such long determine discrimination against us. The NIH has sponsored, um, has provided over $32 million in tax grants money to to write articles that specifically discriminate against Lyme patients, saying that we are dangerous, that we are not um, worthy of participating in public policy, that um, we are attention-seeking, we are antibiotic-seeking. We are nefarious. These, are all, these articles have been sponsored by NAH grant money.
0: I want a t-shirt that says nefarious.
1: <laughs> I, I, I like that. <laughs> I was talking to an insurance guy the other day and he was like have you ever had a moving violation? And I said, honey I am a moving violation. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean that's the system we're up against, you know. You have the um, NIH sponsoring these articles? That's that's we we deserve special protection. You know, we have actually been it's this has not been uh, a kind of a, an oversight, you know, like uh oh we forgot about this patient group. This has been actually attacking on us. It's actually been attacking us.
0: Yeah, it's certainly feels that way and the lack of progress is brutal
1: it has been they have been i mean it's it's they have been you know they have been attacking us so i mean i i think a lot can be done um i just think that you have to be i think you have to say what it is i mean you know and and the tide is turning i mean the reason that these codes got recognized was because too many people can you know are are getting sick and, they, and the and the flimflam the bogus science and the fraud is being they're losing ground, which is one reason why they're getting so virulent about things in these days. You know, they're under the gun. Um, there are a lot of lawsuits all over the world now being taken against the diagnostic test. People are suing the, the labs and the, and the um, producers for, false, for fraudulent uh, messaging.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how those lawsuits go through.
1: Yeah, and yeah, and the one with the RICO lawsuit here in the States, I really hope that happens. Mm-hmm. So they certainly qualify. I mean, I can't tell you. I mean, there's just like a list of people at the IDSA who, who basically act as expert witnesses against anybody who is seeking uh, coverage for chronic Lyme. That's their job. I mean, it's so obviously nothing to do with medicine and science and so obviously everything to do with money. Yeah, and 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 a related thing is that what's really interesting when the um, uh, Affordable Care Act was was put in place, they had these things called the benchmark plans, and um, every state had to forward um, what would be considered a benchmark plan, like the what would be offered via the Affordable Care Act in their state, and the state of Connecticut recognized Chronic Lyme. So once things get into the benchmark plans, and they get they get um, funneled up into the federal level. Um, then basically, it's a it's a standard for coverage for all chronic diseases. <laughs> it, it got through the whole system in Connecticut, got up into the federal level, and and they just tried to keep it quiet. Like nobody should know that chronic Lyme has been recognized as a chronic disease. And according to the Affordable Care Act, you are entitled. You cannot be discriminated against for chronic Lyme. And in the meanwhile, what the insurance companies did was they upped the ante to make sure that no one would get a diagnosis of chronic Lyme. Right. You see, even though it was recognized by the insurance company, Kineticare. Right. So these are like just all dirty tricks and it's all about money.
0: Janet, you've been so helpful and so insightful. Thank you for sharing your passion.
1: Oh, you're welcome.
0: your experience and all you've learned, I think, well, I know and people find this very, very helpful.
1: Well, I think there's a lot of very practical things we can do, but I tell you, it's not going to happen if people don't take action. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, we'll have to do this again. Okay. As things move through the system, as you keep... Uh, keep the pressure on and keep the heat on. I th- I'm sure things will change.
1: I hope so. It's
0: like they're starting to move. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, and, uh, I, I had a chance to read your website and, um, I, I appreciate that you've been trying to help people with the range of therapies that can be done to treat this illness. All bodies of medical knowledge need to be brought to bear on this.
0: Absolutely. You know, nobody's cracked the code yet.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah and um like
0: your, your your husband's a perfect example
1: oh yeah yeah he you know yeah. this is a devastating illness
0: it certainly
1: is and you know like i said i have very little patience for people who kind of quibble around it <laughs> it's yeah. just it's just as bad as this situation is just as bad as all of the other horrific human rights abuses i've been involved with it qualifies you know It definitely qualifies.
0: That's saying a lot because you've you've done your homework.
2: This was such an interesting interview. And I'm a little bit reminded of, you know, when you go to a car dealership and you don't say the price that you actually want to pay right out. You take a lower stance and see what you can get from there.
0: You think Jenna's negotiating.
2: I I do think Jenna's negotiating. And I think it's really great that she's taking such an aggressive stance because it just kind of jolts everybody out of whatever complacent thing that we were going along with, including me when I was listening to her. I was like, oh, okay, we're at this level now. Okay.
0: She (laughs) is a very passionate Advocate for people with Lyme disease, no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. And clearly, her story with her own Lyme journey and her husband's is part of that motivation. If you like what we're doing here at Lyme Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button.
2: If you really like what we're doing, leave us a review on your podcast app.
0: And if you really, really like what we're doing, I'd appreciate it if you donated $1 a month through our website.
2: For just $1 a month, you can help us make the world a better place for people with tick-borne diseases. Just head on over to our new homepage, radio.com and look for the patron link under the How Can We Help You section.
0: And a big shout out for our newest patrons, Catherine and Kelly. Thank you for making the world a better place for people with Lyme and those other dastardly tick-borne diseases.
2: Also, if you have any feedback, suggestions for guests, anything really, send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaradio.com.
0: Love us, hate us, but don't ignore us. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day.
2: Did you know? A ninja can teach math to solve its own problems. ¶¶